Welcome to the Placebo Magic Podcast, the podcast about teaming up with your superstitious brain. I'm your host, Durmak, the wizard and peasant lord of this vast ten-acre realm of Habdur, also known as Farm Code Gary, also known as Garrison Benson. Greetings Placebo Mages! Today is the third and final part in our series on the Enneagram Personality Type System. If you're not familiar with the Enneagram, I'd recommend going back and starting with Episode 17, Part 1 of this series. In Part 1, we introduced the system and looked in more depth at the Feeling Center Types. In Part 2, we looked in depth at the Thinking Center Types. And today we'll be covering some additional information about the system as a whole and looking in depth at the instinctive center types, types 8, 9, and 1. First, I want to touch briefly on two additional ways of grouping the nine personality types into three groups of three, besides the three centers. The three centers, which we've discussed previously, are basically our circle of nine types subdivided into a pie, uh, like a pie into three sections with each of each with three types in it. Now, another way of grouping the types is into the Hornevian groups. The Hornevian groups basically indicate an approach to meeting your needs. If you know your center, your driving emotion, and your Hornevian group, your approach, then you know your Enneagram type based on the combination of the two. On the diagram, the Hornevian groups form narrow isosceles triangles consisting of two adjacent types on one side of the circle and the, the type that's opposite those on the other side of the circle. So uh, Enneagrams types 4, 5, and 9 are the withdrawing group. These, these types try to meet their needs by disengaging with the world, withdrawing into their inner life. Enneagram types 1, 2, and 6 are the compliant group. These, groups, these types try to meet their needs by submitting to their superegos, their inner voices of authority. They're constantly asking themselves, what should I be doing? What am I supposed to do? Their strong sense of responsibility often makes them automatically think that they're better than other people, though in subtle ways. Types 7, 8, and 3 are the assertive or ego-expansive group. These types try to meet their needs by asserting themselves against their environment, by expanding their egos to see themselves as the center of the situation. I think for most people, their Hornevian group is probably a lot more obvious than their center. Because while the center is about this kind of deep, subtle, sometimes hidden motivation, the Hornevian group is about action and approach. It's a little more visible. Like recently, I was trying to figure out Spider-Man, a.k.a. Peter Parker's Enneagram type. Even having read hundreds of Spider-Man comics, I still had difficulty narrowing it down between the one, the two, and the six. But uh, those three types make up the compliant group, the Hornevian group. It's obvious that he's one of those three. It's obvious that he's a compliant because what, because Spider-Man approaches almost every situation through this lens of his overwhelming burden of responsibility. He's constantly asking, what should I do? What's my responsibility here? With great power comes great responsibility. Um, whether the ultimate thrust is from fear, shame, or anger is a lot more difficult to tell. It's a lot more subtle. For the record, though, I did decide Spider-Man is a two. Uh, more, more on that some other time. On the other hand, if you look at someone like Thor, it's super obvious that he's in the assertive group. He goes into almost any situation declaring, here I am, I'm awesome, I'm, I'm here to save the day. 
His ego rises to the challenge. It's much more difficult to answer whether Thor is a three, seven, or eight, or which one of the, the types in the assertive group that he is, whether he's driven most by shame, fear, or anger. Anyway, as long as we're on Marvel superheroes, the Hulk, despite his constantly asserting that he's the strongest there is, is pretty obviously a withdrawing type when you start to read about him in the comics and stuff. Um, whether in Bruce Banner form or in Hulk form, he reacts to stressful situations by seeking solitude and peace and quiet. But again, it's a little more difficult to determine whether he's a 9, 4, or 5. More on Hulk in a few minutes. Anyway, identifying the Hornivian group can be a good starting point in identifying someone's type. The other way of grouping the nine types is into the harmonic groups. The harmonic groups basically indicate how your ego maintains itself in the face of disappointment, how it maintains harmony. Each har harmonic group contains three types going around the circle, skipping every other. It's kind of hard to explain without the visual aid in the diagram, but basically you're counting by twos. The competency group consists of types 1, 3, and 5. And these types basically react to disappointment by trying to disconnect from their feelings and focus on being maximally effective and objective. The reactive group consists of types 4, five, and, or four 6, and 8. These types tend to deal with disappointment by having a strong emotional reaction, and they tend to want others to reflect that reaction. The positive outlook group consists of types 7, 9, and 2. These types deal with disappointment by trying to reframe it in a positive light, looking for the silver lining. Okay, so it's not super essential to understand the Hornivian groups or the harmonic groups, but I wanted to touch on them briefly to offer a glimpse into just how nuanced the Enneagram gets. Obviously, people are governed by complex biological processes that can't ultimately be reduced to an abstract system, but this particular abstract system, the Enneagram, is really elegant and endlessly useful approximation of human nature, and you can work with it for years and keep uncovering new layers of helpful truth. There's one other thing I'd like to point out here about the system as a whole. Um, a, no a number of Enneagram resources describe these lines of stress and security crisscrossing the diagram, connecting the types together, in terms of growth and disintegration, the idea being that when you're growing and healthy, you take on traits of one type, and when you're unhealthy, you take on traits of another type. And I really disagree with that wording. I, I insist instead on referring to them as movements in stress and security. When you're unhealthy, you're going to tend to feel more stress. And when you're healthy, you're going to tend to feel more secure. That's not always the case. There's, there's healthy stress and there's unhealthy security. Take Donald Trump, for instance. He's an extremely unhealthy type 8. But his ego is so inflated, he feels so secure, that he expresses a lot of the negative traits of the two demanding that other people acknowledge his contributions way more than he expresses the traits of type 5. Um, in my life as a 1, as I've grown healthier, I've tended to express more of the 7 traits and fewer of the 4 traits because I spend less time feeling stressed and more time feeling secure. But nonetheless, I have a lot of experience expressing the negative aspects of the 7 when my ego is inflated or the positive aspects of the 4 when I'm, my ego is deflated in a, in a healthy way, when I'm, when I'm kind of being more honest with myself. As we get healthier, we develop more helpful reactions to stress as well as confidence. Or as we get less healthy, we develop more harmful reactions to both to confidence as well as stress. To communicate this in covering each type, I've tried to point out both healthy and less healthy expressions of both the stressed and the relaxed dynamics. All right, so let's dig into the instinctive center types. There are three types comprising the 
the instinctive center, like the other centers, and these are the three types at the top of the Enneagram, types 8, 9, and 1. They're basically driven by their gut instincts and intuition, as opposed to emotions for the feeling center types or thoughts for the thinking center types. The dominant negative emotion for the instinctive center is anger, as opposed to shame for the feeling center or fear for the thinking center. And while the, the feeling center tends to be motivated by the past and the thinking center tends to be motivated by the future, the instinctive center tends to be motivated in reaction against the present. So we'll start with the type 8, the challenger or the asserter or the leader. Eights are motivated primarily by a desire to protect themselves and to feel strong and vibrantly alive, and by a fear of being overpowered or diminished. Basically, as much as possible, they want to be in control of their situation and master of their world. They have enormous willpower and confidence, and they can often project a tough or intimidating facade. Eights tend to project themselves as straight talkers, and it's not that they're necessarily always honest, it's that they think other people should be tough enough to handle what they have to say without them having to filter themselves. Eights see struggle as the primary means to get what they want and to control their world. No pain, no gain. And oftentimes they can have major blind spots when they don't realize that they're overextending themselves and putting unsustainable strain on their relationships or their body um, through this ongoing sacrifice. Of the three types in the instinctive center, all of which are driven by anger, eights are the only ones that actually are comfortable thinking of themselves as angry people, as being driven by anger. They tend to wear their anger and their other potentially offensive instincts, their hunger and lust and, and rudeness, um, on their sleeves. While eights seem to enjoy conflict, they really only enjoy safe conflict. They want to feel strong, but they don't enjoy feeling seriously threatened. So, for instance, they might really enjoy roasting people and being roasted, um, but only in so much as they ultimately feel safe in that social situation. Likewise, with debate or martial arts or an accountability group, um, they want to be tested for their toughness, but they don't really want to be in, in real danger. Eight's de desire for control and self-determination tends to drive them towards roles of either leadership or, or at least independence. If, if I can't be the boss, I at least want to be self-employed, be my own boss. When eights are under stress, they take on some of the traits of type five, the investigator, suddenly withdrawing from an active role and shifting into an, a detached information gathering mode. They want to isolate themselves from the world and other people while they research their options and prepare themselves to re-enter stronger. My close friend who's an eight, um, when he's in over his head with work, he'll sometimes suddenly dive into a planning and organizing mode locking himself in his office with a huge stack of books and three-ring binders, and a week later he'll emerge with a new plan for the next three years. This sort of reaction can make an eight even more emotionally unavailable than usual, but in a healthier reaction to stress, it can give them an opportunity to regroup and to better strategize before they charge in again, guns blazing. When they feel secure, eights take on some of the traits of type two, the helper. In a less healthy expression, this could take the form of them trying to get other people to admit that they need the eight, or trying to get other people to depend on them as their protector or their champion, the person who stands up to bullies by maybe becoming a bully themselves. But in a healthier form, eights are able to let down their guard and allow their natural care and generosity to emerge, using their strength and natural leadership and instinctive appreciation for human dignity to help others in a way that's both strong and genuinely loving. 
Two really prominent examples of eights are Donald Trump and Martin Luther King Jr. Donald Trump brands himself as a straight talker, but it really has nothing at all to do with telling the truth and everything to do with being raw and unfiltered and rude, even if he happens to be lying through his teeth while doing it. Many eights, for better or worse, have this sense of their people, and Trump included, but few express this as helpfully as Martin Luther King Jr. And with him, you can really see this movement toward the two expressed in the form of the unconditional love that's in his, in his pacifistic approach. He's going to champion his people, speaking truth to power and speaking on behalf of the rights to dignity and self-determination, but he's going to do it in a way that acknowledges that every person is worthy of compassion and every person is capable of, of moving toward uh, love. Next up we have type nine, the peacemaker or the mediator. Nines are motivated by a desire for peace, especially inner peace and stability, peace of mind, and also by a fear of being disconnected, disconnected from their loved ones and from the environment. Nines basically want to be low maintenance. They want to go along with other people and avoid conflict. They're normally very agreeable and easygoing and optimistic, but they can also be super passive aggressive and stubborn as they officially deny having any problem of any kind with anyone, but everyone else can see them digging their heels in the ground. Um, when it comes down to it, nines are really, really uncomfortable with conflict to the point that they'll end up creating conflict in order to avoid conflict. Stereotypically, it's like the middle child syndrome. Nines are eager to disappear in order to help everyone get along with each other. Um, they they want to they grease the wheels of social life. Or another stereotype would be a hippie spiritualist kind of thing. Everything's cool, man. It's all good. The universe is love, dude. Like, what does that even mean? Nines tend to be drawn to peaceful, natural settings. Like, like fours and fives, they're one of the withdrawing types. But while fours and fives tend to visibly, physically, geographically make themselves into wallflowers, um, nines want to be with other people. They want to be in the middle of the action. They're not necessarily affected or bothered by it. Um, so it can be a little subtle. They don't, they don't, it's not always obvious that they're withdrawing when they're doing it. Fearing, fearing disconnection, nines don't physically withdraw very much. They just d dissociate, retreating into daydreams or idealized versions of their loved ones, or just into straight-up fantasy, you know, Star Wars, whatever. Though nines struggle with laziness and procrastination, often their laziness is disguised as, a, as busyness, like busy work that doesn't really accomplish much of anything. And often it's not laziness in the usual sense. It's more like a spiritual laziness, an emotional laziness, avoiding problems, suppressing rage, um, disengaging from their instinctual energies, their, their hungers and their lusts and those kind of things. Under stress, nines take on the traits of the six, the loyal skeptic, suddenly becoming anxious, neurotic, workaholic, and emotionally reactive, which is, you know, the opposite of how they usually are. Like sixes, they'll vent to their inner circle about their frustrations, which for nines have often been kept hidden for way too long. Also like sixes, um, under stress, nines might seek an outside source of stability, while at the same time being highly skeptical of it. In a healthy reaction to stress, though, nines can use this time as an opportunity to, learn, to lean more on their loved ones and allow themselves to express their own needs and wants more honestly. When nines feel secure, they take on more traits of type three, the achiever. They begin to feel more comfortable acknowledging and developing their own potential, and, and they feel, com feel more comfortable standing out from the crowd, um, moving from a nobody or an everyman to a hero. In a less healthy expression, this could be kind of bragging or egotism that sort of suddenly emerges, 
but in a healthier form, letting go of their fear of individuation paradoxically allows nines to achieve their goal of making peace by becoming an effective proactive agent for peace rather than just kind of trying to make peace by by uh, shutting down and, and not causing not making waves. Mr. Rogers is a great example of a healthy nine. He took his fear and discomfort at all this chaos in the world and channeled it into a great achievement, creating Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, not by diminishing himself, but by recognizing his own individual value and potential, and then making that his message, that everyone is inherently special. Um, with his show, he found a way to deliver a peaceful space for children across the country. And, and he, you know, he, cultivated, he cultivated a persona which is um, a very three-like thing to do, but he did it, you know, driven by his nine motivation to create peace. He he used this tool of, of cultivating a, a, the persona of Mr. Rogers. Nines can make pretty effective politicians as well, as they tend to be excellent at reaching across the aisle and finding common ground. Also, I promised that I would get back to the Incredible Hulk, and believe it or not, he and Bruce Banner are type nine, the peacemaker. Hulk is basically an extreme, fantastical rendition of the Nine's repressed anger. Generally, the Hulk just wants to be left in peace. He wants people to stop fighting and yelling and shooting at him, and he's constantly trying to flee to serene, natural settings. Under stress, Hulk becomes more like a Six, emotionally reactive and paranoid. Um, he's skeptical of anyone else's, uh, if anyone else is trustworthy. Feeling secure, though, Hulk becomes more like a Three, heroic, or if, if not heroic, at least egotistical, as we see in Thor Ragnarok, when he's become the favorite gladiator on planet Sakaar. And his, you know, one of Hulk's catchphrases in the comics is, Hulk is the strongest there is. Also in, in a superhero hero, uh, vein, we've got Luke Cage, at least in the Netflix show. I haven't read enough of the comics to know if, if Luke Cage is a, a nine in the comics, but in the TV show, he definitely is a type nine. He's the quintessential everyman hero. At the start of the show, he just wants to keep a low profile, sweeping hair off the floor in the barber shop. He wants to feel connected to his community without actually attracting any attention or being bothered by anybody. As the first season continues, though, we see Luke taking on more traits of the three, allowing himself to become a symbol of hope for Harlem, seeing the value in his superpowers um, t for his goal of making peace. He, you know, he goes around folding guns in half and his skin deflects bullets, and he he's he becomes this um, paragon, reminding people of their own cultural values. When he's under stress, though, we also see him moving toward the six, showing these sudden outbursts of of anger and paranoid distrust. Um, you know, he he doesn't he gets into trouble in the show because he doesn't trust people that he should trust. All right, so moving on, I save the best for last. Type 1, that's me. I am, I am a type 1. Type 1 is the reformer or the perfectionist. And since this is my type, I can offer a little more of an insider's perspective. Um, basically, our deepest desire as ones is to be good in a moral sense and to reduce the chaos in the world around us. Oftentimes, we'll express this by being strict, whether in following rules and procedures, observing a rigid diet, being relentlessly punctual, being impeccably tidy or hygienic, um, etc. Sometimes we can hold on to unrealistic expectations and we can treat ourselves or other people very harshly when they don't measure up. Um, ones are instinctual teachers, for better or worse. Sometimes it can be difficult for us to stop teaching and just interact with other people in a normal way as peers. 
On the outside, we tend to project an air of impeccability, or at least rigidity, but on the inside, ones are often roiling with anger at all the little things that just don't measure up, whether in ourselves, in the environment around us, or in the people around us. Um, we're constantly measuring reality against our idea of how things should be. Like the other types in the instinctual center, ones are driven by their instincts and their anger. But like nines, um, we don't think of ourselves as angry, necessarily. We want to think of ourselves as logical and objective. But in truth, um, our reasoning is always following behind, reacting to the gut instincts that are actually taking the lead. Um, our, our, our logic, our, our reasoning is constantly trying to justify our instinctual drive. Ones are constantly using their superegos to keep their instinctual drives and appetites in check, afraid of what the consequences would be of loosening up and giving ourselves too much freedom. Generally, ones uh, are constantly striving for objectivity, repressing our animal instincts in favor of what we see as morality. But under stress, we suddenly become more like type 4, the individualist. And in practice, this means we tend to take everything personally. We think that no one understands or appreciates us. We think that if, if other people just took our advice, everything would work out. We become moody and irrational and obsessive and often depressed. And like fours, we partake in a sort of joyless, deadening indulgence in food or substances or sex or media, telling ourselves things like, well, if everyone else on this godforsaken planet is just going to sit around watching Netflix and eating pizza all day, then I am too. Um, on the other hand, though, when we deal with our stress in a, in a more healthy way, uh, we can access some of the positive traits of type four, expressing our feelings through art and discovering unique value in our own subjective emotional landscape. When ones feel secure, we become more like type 7, the enthusiast. Now this can just mean letting our hair down a little bit, partying when our inner critic goes out of town, making raunchy jokes, or recklessly pursuing our appetites. In a healthier expression, though, it means that we, we learn to stop judging so much and we spend more time spontaneously experiencing and appreciating life's diverse pleasures. Our sense of humor and our appreciation for the silly and the absurd naturally emerge. We learn to value the joys of subjective animal experiences, and eventually we realize that our desire to improve ourselves and the world has to begin with our own happiness. For me, I've been shifting from asking myself if something is right to asking if it's helpful, or from asking if something is the correct option to asking if it's a good option, embracing more of the adaptability and pragmatism and optimism and open, openness to opportunity of the seven. Both Gandhi and Osama bin Laden were type 1 personalities, at complete opposite ends of the health spectrum. They're both extremely motivated to make the world a better place in their eyes. Um, Osama bin Laden by punishing infidels, and Gandhi by loving his enemies. Gandhi had to let, had let go of the idea that he could objectively judge anyone, so he erred on the side of compassion and nonviolence, while still capitalizing on the motivating energy of his anger, and he had a lot of anger. Um, the Apostle Paul, writer of most of the New Testament, was also a one, um, moving from persecuting Christians, punishing infidels, basically, to, to preaching about grace as he became healthier, though I think it's hugely unfortunate for, for Christianity that Paul's particular obsession with right and wrong and moral justification ended up being canonized at the same level of, of official scripturalness as Jesus' much healthier and more balanced teaching. I think we would, be have, we would have a much different Christianity if it hadn't gotten sort of overwhelmed by Paul's focus on, on moral 
on, on you know whether you were morally cleansed and forgiven and for all the wrong things that you did. In fiction, some examples of ones would include Spock from Star Trek, President Business from the Lego Movie, and uh, Daredevil, aka Matt Murdock from Marvel. All right, so that about wraps up our three-part series on the Enneagram. When I started working on this, I thought it would be really easy for me um, because I've been interested in the Enneagram for a long time, but I actually realized along the way that there were a lot of gaps in my understanding. So I learned a ton myself while I was working on writing this. Always a good thing. Um, I want to make another plug for the book The Wisdom of the Enneagram by Don Richard Riso and Russ Hudson. As I leaned on that resource really, really heavily, especially for this episode and its discussion on the Hornivian and Harmonic groups. There's a lot more that we could discuss about the Enneagram, and we probably will in the future, but, you know, we've already had three episodes about it for now, so we'll, we'll get back to it sometime down the road. Anyway, though the Enneagram isn't really placebo magic itself, the elegant interconnectedness of the system and the arcane-looking diagram itself make, they make a great candidate for incorporation into your magical practice. It's just very, it's a very wizardy thing. Like most of what we discuss here on the show, it's something that would typically be filed in the New Age section of a bookstore that I don't think rationalists should be too quick to dismiss. It's worth a second look, not because of any supernatural element, but because it happens to be enormously helpful. And now it's time for the Spell of the Week! The Spell of the Week this week is an invocation to call on the strengths of one of the nine Enneagram types. Okay, so this is kind of like a sequel or an expansion pack for the Spell of the Week segment in our first Enneagram episode, which was episode 17. In that segment, we talked about setting up a circle of nine candles, one representing each of the nine Enneagram types in a sort of archetypally healthy form. Nine sages to help you to, to keep balanced during your spell work. Now, let's suppose that you've done that. You've summoned the circle of nine, um, but you want to channel the strengths of one of the types in particular. Maybe you want help expressing your emotions through the power of the four, or maybe you want willfulness through the power of the eight, or compassion through the power of the two. In the circle of nine, turn and orient yourself facing this particular sage. Kneel before them and place at the base of the candle a figurine or a picture, something small enough to put in your pocket that represents that type. It could be Spider-Man if you're channeling the two, or Sherlock Holmes if you're channeling the five, or it could be a photo of a wise ancestor of whichever type you're petitioning. Ask the sagely spirit to imbue the object with its essence so that it can serve as a guide for you throughout your day, helping you to tap into that particular strength. And then you can take that object and carry it with you into whatever situation you need that strength. You can find the Placebo Magic Podcast and my poetry and other writing on the web at farmcodegary.com. Send your feedback to farmcodegary at protonmail.com and let me know if I can read your feedback on the show. Music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. You can support the show by giving us a review on your podcast app of choice, sharing an episode with a friend, or becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash placebomagic. Patreon supporters also gain access to our Patreon-exclusive bonus show. Remember, magic is a metaphor, and metaphor is magical.